Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, good, well, I almost said good morning. I'm going to probably make that mistake a bunch of times this evening, but it's good to be here. Thank you guys. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to bring to you God's Word tonight. Um, let me ask you to go ahead and find in your Bibles John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So turn over in your Bible or turn on your Bible, whatever you like, and find John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Steve Doyle. I am the Director of Missions for the Brazos Valley Baptist Network. That is the network or the association of churches that your church is a part of. And so I am here to serve the churches of this area. I'm sort of a pastor to the pastors, if you will. Um, I do a lot of different things through the association. Sometimes I'm coaching churches uh, or coaching pastors. Sometimes I'm working with revitalizations or replants or even planting churches. Uh, sometimes I'm helping churches think through even their transitions that they're going through. And I know you guys are going through a transition right now. And so one of the things I want to make myself available to you guys for is after the service um, this evening, I'll be here just to answer any questions you might have because you're going through a, a new season in your church. And you might have some questions as to how other churches do this or how the association can help during the season. I'm here to answer those questions for you. But right now I plan to continue to walk through the book of John, the gospel of John with you through this journey that you've already begun. And I, I didn't write it down, but I believe that the title of this series is called Magnifying the Glory of Jesus. And that title for this series just fits right in with what we're going to be talking about in today's text. As was mentioned earlier, what we have in today's passage of Scripture is Jesus' first public miracle. The apostles... Uh, like John, or I should say the Apostle John, different than the other apostles, he, seems to, he tends to refer to Jesus' miracles as signs. Now, this word is also used sometimes in the other Gospels, but usually the word to refer to Jesus' miracles is a different word that, that, that comes from the root, word, the root Greek word for power. But John uses the word sign every time he refers to Jesus' miracles because just like in the Greek, the word sign means that it points to something. It's showing us something beyond just the act itself. So let's think about that word sign, these, that word sign in our, even in our language today. So as you're finding the passage of Scripture, I'm going to put some signs on the screen here, okay? So some signs make a whole lot of sense to us. Okay, that's pretty easy to understand. The road is closed and you need to go in that right-hand direction so you don't drive into a ditch, okay, so that you take that direction. Pretty easy to understand. Um, but some signs in our world are a bit confusing, right? I mean, I'm not quite sure what they want us to do here. Okay, once you've stopped, there's really nothing else you can do, okay? That you, it, that's a very confusing sign. It's a bit hard to understand. Or some signs just aren't very clear, okay? Now, this man is technically obeying the sign. So the makers of this sign weren't very clear with what they wanted people to do. And some signs are a bit alarming. I'm not, well, let me, let me stay, stay with that one right there. Some signs seem to be a little bit useless, okay? I, I'm not sure we really need that sign. I'm not sure about you guys, but that doesn't help me very much. I think that was pretty self-explanatory what's happening there. And bring the next sign up. We'll see which one that is. Some signs, okay, get lost in translation, okay? 
I, don't, I guess you can walk on the grass, just be very quiet while you're walking because the grass is dreaming, okay? Don't wake up the grass, all right? And some signs are just not helpful at all, <laughs> okay? I'm not sure how to help this guy or gal uh, or whoever lost their cat. I have never seen a cat that looks like that. I don't think I'll ever see a cat that looks like that. So some signs are just not helpful at all. But this first sign that Jesus gives us, it is not insignificant. It is not meaningless. Quite the contrary, it's important. And we need to make sure it's not lost in translation, that we're not missing the meaning. So that it can point us to the glory and the majesty of our Savior, of his work, and of his word. So please stand with me now as we read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We stand to the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. You do understand that this word that we're reading came, carries the same authority as if Jesus were standing right here in the flesh speaking to us. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray now that you would grant me a mouth to speak it, to preach it accurately and give all of us in here, my, myself included, ears to hear it and hearts to receive it rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Now, there is a temptation when you come to this story, this story of Jesus' first miracle, to um, just sort of treat it as an inconsequential miracle that Jesus performed to simply help his mom and to help this, this poor wedding couple get through an embarrassing situation. But that would be a huge mistake to come to this first sign of Jesus' and to treat it that way. I think the key, the key verse to really understanding this passage of Scripture is verse 11, when it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is not merely Jesus fixing an embarrassing social situation. John says that this sign manifested the glory of Jesus and that it resulted in his disciples believing in him. 
So the question that I have that should be hanging over this sermon for us this evening is this. How does this sign manifest Jesus' glory so that for all who have eyes to see, it generates belief, it generates faith? Lord willing, your faith will be deepened today. Or perhaps there will be some in here for the very first time will see and savor Jesus and put their faith in him. So I want to see how this text glorifies Jesus and increases our faith. But to do that, let's talk a little bit more about the purpose of signs. A sign calls our attention to something and points to something other than itself. The sign itself is not the end goal. I remember the first time my family went to Disney World in Florida. And we drove to Disney World, and if you're getting close to Disney World, you come to the, to the entrance of Disney World, and there's this gigantic sign. And, and Mickey's there, and a few of the other characters, and this big old banner across the road that says, Welcome to Disney World. It's quite impressive. Now, my family decided, hey, let's pull over and let's take a picture in front of the gigantic sign. And we did that. But it would have been very silly, and I think my children would have been greatly disappointed, had we turned around and gone back home. Guys, there we go. We saw Disney World. Well, technically we saw part of it. But the sign wasn't the reason, reason we went to Disney World. We went to see Mickey and to ride the rides and do all the fun stuff. For John, the miracles that he chooses to include in his gospel are always meant to point us to some truth about Jesus. So we can conclude that John carefully chooses his miracles that he includes in his gospel. If you look at John chapter 20, verse 31, John says this about what he's put into this book. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So that's, that's really John's purpose statement for the whole gospel of John. And so this first sign is fitting into that purpose statement. And so he didn't just, just willy-nilly pick this miracle out of a bunch of them. He, he chose this sign for a reason. It was meant to point us to Jesus. As a matter of fact, John even says in his gospel that Jesus did many, many more signs than what, what he includes here. But these are meant to point us to Jesus, to see his glory, and to believe. So I want us to see the glory of Jesus manifested in these signs. The first thing that I want us to see this evening is that, that this first sign manifests the glory of Jesus as the obedient son. This first sign manifests the glory of Jesus, the obedient son. And I see that in his words, my hour has not yet come. And I'll explain that in a minute. But... Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's set the stage here. There's been a big glitch at a wedding in Cana. Now, I've done lots of premarital counseling. And one of, the things I, one of the things I always tell the couple is there's going to be glitches in your wedding. That always distresses the bride a little bit. But I tell them, nothing is perfect. There's always something. Like in my wedding, um, when we did the, the rehearsal beforehand, we didn't tell our little ring bearer that the, the flower girl would be dropping petals. Okay, we just assumed he would know that, I guess. I don't know, he was only three, but we assumed that. And so then when the wedding day comes and they're supposed to come in together, she starts throwing petals and he thinks she's dropping things. He's, a, he's trying to stop her. You're dropping your flowers and he's picking them up as they go down the aisle. 
Okay, it didn't quite go how we planned. It ended up being cute and a fun memory. But every wedding has its glitches. But this was a serious glitch that happens here in Cana. This one was a biggie. The wine had run out. Now let me just get this out of the way up front. This is not Welch's grape juice. This is wine. For those of you who may come from a little bit more of a fundamentalist background or something like that, let me just tell you. I, I, was at a, I went to a Christian high school, and I remember a guy coming and preaching to us this passage of Scripture, and he spent 30 minutes trying to explain to us how this wine was not alcoholic. It said it was just grape juice, and he went on and on and on. And friends, I'm not going to waste your time with that silliness because it's not true. This is wine. It's alcoholic. The first miracle Jesus ever did was to make some alcoholic wine, okay? Just get over it if it's a problem with, for you, all right? Now, we read here in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, and by the way, Jesus' mother is never named in the Gospel of John. It's just an interesting side fact. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, perhaps Mary was involved in the wedding somehow. Maybe she had been there uh, earlier than Jesus for some reason because she was related to the, to the bride or to the groom. But whatever it is, it seems that she has some sort of sway, some sort of authority, because she tells the servants to obey Jesus. So whatever her role or her situation was, she takes it upon herself to try to rectify this embarrassing situation. You see, in those days, running out of, of wine in a wedding feast, and the wedding feast usually lasted about seven days, but to run out of, of wine would have been a serious scandal. It would have been a social scandal. It would have been stigmatizing to the family. So Mary springs into action. She comes to Jesus and asks him to take care of it. Now, why? Why does she come and ask Jesus to take care of this? Remember, this is Jesus' first miracle. He's not performed a miracle before this. Despite what you might have heard or seen in some apocryphal accounts of Jesus' childhood, Jesus has never performed a miracle before this one. But she knows some things. <laughs> She knows that he is the savior of his people, the Messiah. She knows where he came from, from the Holy Spirit. And she knows that this Messiah will be the final prophet. He'll be the one who will solve all of his people's problems. And so she comes to him with this problem. But Jesus responds, woman, that, what does this have to do with me? Now that response immediately makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, if you're honest. That Jesus responds this way to Mary. I mean, if my children, I don't care if they are 3 or 30, talk to my wife and say, woman, they're going to be in some serious trouble, okay? They don't talk to my wife that way. But we need to understand that this, this, this word woman here, this expression, was not a, a, as rude as it sounds to us. This was a more common greeting. Jesus does this several times. He does it with Mary Magdalene. He does it with the woman at the well, okay? It was more like saying, ma'am. But at the same time, there is an Aramaic and a Greek word for mother. And Jesus doesn't use it. He doesn't say mother. So on one hand, he's not being rude. But on the other hand, he's not particularly warm either. Not only that, he follows up woman with, what does that have to do with me? Now it sounds like he's really sassing off to his mom. Okay, now, it's, now we, of course, we know he's not. He is our sinless Savior. So 
this, we need to figure out what he's doing here. And this, this phrase is actually an Aramaic uh, idiom that's really hard to translate. But it is also used in a couple of other places in the other Gospels. And it usually refers to someone intruding upon someone else's realm. So it's kind of like Jesus saying, this isn't about me. This isn't my business. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, the demons, when they're speaking to Jesus, say something similar. They, they use the same idiom when they say, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? So when he says this is... Uh, when he says this phrase, he's not being rude, but at the same time, he's gently rebuking his mother as to say, Mom, it's not your place, nor do you have the authority to call out my power and to, to direct when I'm supposed to reveal myself. Steve, you may say, it doesn't sound like he's being a very obedient son, and your first point is sitting here talking about him being the obedient son. Well, I want you to hang with me. Now, the fact that Jesus, after saying this, he actually does the miracle, begs the question, why did he even say this? Why didn't he just say, yes, mother, I'll take care of it? It's because Jesus wants his mother to know. With this response, he wants his mother to know that his ultimate obedience, the ultimate authority over when and where and how he manifests his glory and manifests his messiahship is not in her hands. The ultimate authority over his life is in his father's hands. He wants his, his, his mother to know that ultimately he can only do his father's will and do it in his father's timing. And that's why he says this phrase, my hour has not yet come. Now no one, not even his mom, directs his steps. John chapter 8 verse 28 says, I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father has taught me. Jesus he has these familial, these family bonds with his mother, with his brothers, and with others. But ultimately, the most important bond is the bond he has with his father. He is the perfect, obedient son of our father in heaven. Jesus says something similar to his brothers later in, the, um, in John's gospel. Uh, when they're trying to get him to go to Judea, they say to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. And Jesus said to them, listen to this, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus' mission wasn't to fix weddings or become famous or step into the social political scene as a superhero messiah. And he would not take a shortcut towards establishing his kingdom. Remember, that's what Satan tempted him to do. His mission would only be realized in his father's timing and in his father's way. And Jesus is the, the sinless, perfect, obedient son. And therefore he says, my hour has not yet come. But what hour? What's he referring to here? Well, this phrase, my hour, sometimes translated my time, is repeated by Jesus several times in this gospel. And Jesus repeatedly says that his hour or his time has not come until, until the night he's betrayed. And from that point forward, he says, my time has come. My time is now here. You see, the ultimate aim of the Messiah's ministry was his suffering 
and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection on behalf of all those who would believe. Mary, nor his brothers, nor the disciples fully understand that mission yet. A mission of an obedient son accomplishing his father's will to save sinners. But Mary didn't argue. She doesn't protest. She doesn't say, don't talk back to me. Okay? She doesn't say any of those kind of things. She simply believes. She simply submits. And she expresses faith when she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. She didn't know what he was going to do. She didn't know if he was going to choose to do something or not. She simply knows that he can. And so she submits to what he says, turns to the servants, and says, you know that good-looking boy over there? <laughs> do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. And I think Jesus honors that act of faith and performs this amazing miracle. But it's more than just a miracle. In this miracle, he's showing us something about who he is. Remember, the sign manifests the glory of Jesus, the obedient son. But also showing us something about what his mission is. So this miracle is like a living parable. So first, the sign manifests the glory of Jesus, the obedient son. But the second thing I want us to see is that this sign also manifests the glory of Jesus, the agent of new creation. The second point is the agent of new creation. Now one thing that is very clear in, is that in doing this miracle, like the other miracles of Jesus, he is showing his authority over nature. I heard one commentator say that, that what happened here was that the water heard its creator's voice and blushed. Okay, turned into wine. And Jesus has authority over nature because he is the agent of creation. Remember at the beginning, Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the word. And what we see here in John's gospel is that a new creation theme is being developed. You've probably already seen this as you've, you've been walking through the gospel of John. But John 1.1 kicks off with what words? In the beginning. John is intentionally drawing his readers' minds to the Genesis account of the word's role in creation. And then in these first two chapters, John goes out of his way to, to mention different things happening on different days. Look at the way today's text starts off. It starts off by saying, on the third day. Now John is a very careful writer. But rarely in his gospel is he specific about time. God, John has no problem kind of changing the order of events to fit with the, the subject or the topic that he's trying to focus on. But he does get specific about time in two places. At the very end of the gospel when he talks about um, Good Friday and everything that happens leading up to Jesus' resurrection and then, um, or his crucifixion, then resurrection. And he's also mentioning time here in these very first two chapters of the book. So why is he being specific about time? Well, if you look in these first two chapters closely, you'll see seven days mentioned. In chapter 1, verse 29, there's the mention of a day. And then chapter 1, verse 35. And then chapter 1, verse 39. And then in chapter 1, verse 43, that's four days. And then you come three days later, this is now the seventh day. I think John's intentionally mentioning the numbers of days for a reason here because he wants to draw our mind to a new creation that's happening. 
This pattern of sevens is important in John's gospel. You heard it earlier. There are seven signs in John's gospel. There are seven I am, sta I am statements. And there are seven days leading up to this event. John is too careful of a writer to just be, just to be, making, uh, just be adding time in there for no reason. He is alluding to the creation week. And think about how the first two chapters parallel with Genesis. In the beginning, what's the first thing God does in the beginning? He says, let there be light. And what do we see in John chapter 1, verse 4? In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then how does creation week end in Genesis? It ends with a wedding. It ends with the wedding of Adam and Eve. And so too here in this new creation week, it ends with a wedding. So there's a clear creation emphasis here. But what sort of creative work is happening? It's the new creation work of Jesus. This is Jesus beginning to make all things new. Newness is a major theme in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the new tabernacle. And here we have new wine, which represents the joy and the gladness and the blessing of God. In the end of the chapter, we'll see Jesus talking about a new temple. And then in chapter 3, we'll see him talk to Nicodemus about what? New birth. And then in chapter 4, he sits with that immoral woman at the well and tells her about a new way of worship. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. That's what we're seeing here. So Jesus commands the servants to do what? To fill up these six jars, these stone jars. Uh, but not just any jars. It says they are jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now that has significance, and so we're going to get to it in a second. But the Jewish rites of, of purification required them to wash before meals. And also required the ceremonial washing of dishes and vessels before a meal. So basically these large earthen vessels, which probably were holding you know, around 150 to 200 gallons of water. These are like kitchen sinks or a bathtub. Okay, not exactly the place you want to draw your water from. There were other vessels that the Jews used for, for storing water for short periods of time that they would draw out of the well. But Jesus says, go and dip some water out of that sink over there that you use to wash your hands and wash your dishes and take it to the master of the feast. Now, first of all, I can only imagine what the servants were thinking. But secondly... Imagine if the master of the feast found out. I mean, how unclean, how horrible for a Jew to drink from the very water that they were required to wash in. But there's rich symbolism here. Jesus is taking something filthy and turning it into something lovely. He's taking dirty, filthy, unclean water and turning it into spectacularly good wine. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn, knew where the, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus doesn't just change this water into okay wine. He transforms it into an overflowing abundance of choice wine. This was the good stuff. Our creator isn't just making our broken earth better, friends. He's recreating it into something spectacular. 
He isn't just taking in impure, filthy, unclean sinners and fixing us up a bit. He's transforming us into perfect, holy, righteous saints who will be co-heirs, children of God. Jesus isn't in the improvement business. He's in the tra transformation business. That's what he's doing. He's doing it right now. Even as you sit under the preaching of the word, do you know how Jesus grows you and sanctifies you and changes you? Through the preaching of the word. Jesus praying for you guys and praying for me in John 17, 17. He says, Father, sanctify them with the truth. And then he says this, your word is the truth. The reading of, the study of, the listening to the preaching of, the meditating upon this word is what changes you into that beautiful new wine. It changes you from the person you once were before you knew Christ. Jesus is enacting a transformation here. And on his throne, he will one day declare that all is finished and that I have made all things new, as he teaches us in Revelation 21.5. New creation. So do you see the new creation power of Jesus here in this miracle? I hope you see it. I hope you savor it. I hope you glory in it. This beauty of what our Jesus is doing on our behalf. As was alluded to earlier, and I, I love this. Okay, I did not conspire with your elders in advance to make sure they were reading certain scriptures during this worship service. The Holy Spirit did that conspiring, okay? But I was already thinking about Moses. Because I'm just going to read straight from my notes. It says, in the Old Testament, at the beginning of Moses' ministry, his first sign as he began to deliver Israel from their, their slavery was transforming the water of the Nile into blood as a sign of the wrath and the judgment of God. But now the new has come, and in Jesus' first sign at the beginning of his ministry to deliver true Israel, the new Moses, who is Jesus, is turning water into wine, which will come to symbolize his bloodshed to absorb the wrath of God. And thereby... As he absorbs that wrath of God, he pours out fresh blessings on his people, fresh joy on his people because he's making all things new. So friends, it's not only that we're made new creations through his blood, we're also purified through his blood. And that's my third point. You see, the first sign manifests the glory of Jesus, the obedient son, and as the agent of new creation. But thirdly, as the means of a greater purification. You can see the symbolism of the wine replacing the purification water. For the, the water could clean dirt, but friends, it could do nothing for their sin. That was what the Pharisees kept getting hung up on, wasn't it? Remember Luke chapter 11? Jesus said to them, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did he who made the outside also make the inside? So this water could give them clean hands to come and receive food, but it couldn't clean their hearts to receive God's true blessings. The transformation of the purification water into wine, I believe, is pointing to Jesus' death as the ultimate purification of sins that would nullify and replace the Jewish purification rites and rituals. That's what this hour is all about. He is instituting, as was mentioned earlier in the service, a new covenant which has a deeper cleansing. The old covenant could only deal with the outside. The new covenant goes all the way to the heart. 
And that's exactly what Jeremiah prophesied, wasn't it? Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they took, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant is about internal heart change brought about by the shedding of Jesus' blood, symbolized by what? Wine. When we celebrate that Lord's Supper, what did, what did Jesus say when he instituted the Lord's Supper? It says that he took the cup after they'd eaten, and he said this, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. So his hour, his hour was an hour set by the Father, and his mission was an unwavering commitment to that hour. The hour that he would die to take away our sin and provide purification through his blood. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. Jesus is showing his mother and his disciples a parable so that they might one day, they don't at this moment, but one day understand what his hour was really all about. As he continues to minister to them in the book of John, it will become more and more clear. It will come more and more into focus. So when you get to John chapter 6, you'll read this in verse 40, 53 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So praise be to God that Jesus, the obedient son, the author of our new creation, provides us a greater purification through his blood. The author of Hebrews talks about this so much. And he says this in Hebrews 9, verse 12. It says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What a miracle. What a miracle. And I'm not talking about turning the water into wine. I'm talking about the miracle of Jesus saving us. That's a much greater miracle that he took a fool like me, a rebel like me, and saved me. I deserve nothing of his grace. What a miracle. Friends, Jesus... Think of it this way. We are all rebels. We are born rebels. We're outside of the camp. We're rebelling against the master. And Jesus not only reaches out into that camp and plucks us out of our own destruction and brings us into the castle and forgives us, that would be good enough. But the Bible says he actually sits us at his table and makes us his son. How glorious. Do you deserve an ounce of that? I know I don't. The greatest miracle is that Jesus saves sinners like you and me. And it's represented here 
in this miracle of turning water into wine. But there's one last thing that this miracle points us to. I think it's significant that Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding. We know from Ephesians 5 that marriage, weddings, are a living parable of the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. So finally, this first sign manifests the glory of Jesus, the obedient son, the agent of new creation, the means of greater purification, but also Jesus, the loving bridegroom. Tim Keller observes that whenever we go to a wedding, we can't help but think about our own wedding. We either look forward to ours or we remember ours. I think he's, he's telling the truth there. Whenever you go to a wedding, I always think back to my own wedding. Or maybe you're someone here, you're a single person, and you're looking forward to the day you're going to be married, and you're, you're maybe you're making notes, all right? You know, let's do this. Let's do it. Don't, make sure you know that the, make sure you tell the, the ring bearer that the girl is going to drop the little flowers, okay? Just go ahead and make that note in your notebooks right now. So I think that as Jesus is observing this wedding, he can't, he can't help but be thinking about his own marriage. A much more glorious and magnificent union between himself and his church. The groom in a wedding like this, in a Jewish wedding, was ultimately responsible for the provision of the wine. The master of the feast was usually a hired coordinator of, cert, of sorts. So, you know, we, we hire our wedding coordinators today, and that's what this master of the feast would have been. But the shame for the lack of wine would have fallen on the bridegroom. R.C. Sproul in his uh, commentary says that there are some records of a groom actually being sued because they ran out of wine at a wedding feast, all right? So this was a pretty big social embarrassment. So this bridegroom, he's in trouble. But for the grace of Jesus who intervenes, even in a seemingly insignificant thing like wine at a wedding, this guy would have been shamed. But Jesus is no such bridegroom. He has no shortage of wine to pour out on his people. And as I said earlier, wine symbolizes the blessings of God and his joy that comes from those blessings. So the joy of Jesus' salvation that he offers to us is abundantly flowing, poured out upon his bride. John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I think that's why John points out how big these jars were and how much water was in them. To show that Jesus didn't just make a bottle of wine, say, here you go, here's, a, uh, here's an AD 30 or 83, here you go, whatever. He didn't just give them a bottle of wine, he gives them tons of wine. Because Jesus' blessings come in abundance to those who are his bride. We read in John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. His provision of his goodness and his blessings and his joy never dries up. Interestingly, John the Baptist, he'll just have one more thing to say in the Gospel of John, by the way. And he says this in John chapter 3, verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, listen to this, is now complete. 
or it could be translated full. He must increase, I must decrease. Amen. The groom at this wedding in Cana is a failure. The master of the feast at this wedding in Cana is incompetent. But in steps Jesus, the better groom and the better master. And he fulfilled his father's will perfectly. He did not fail. He saves all those for whom he was sent. And the glorious, our gloriously divine bridegroom is preparing a great feast for all those who belong to him. We read in Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Listen to this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just as the best wine came at the end of this wedding feast, so too the best is yet to come for those who belong to him. <laughs> There's some good wine coming, friends. If, if you're on the guest list at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So church, are you ready? It says here the bride made herself ready. How do we do that? We do that by gathering like we're doing today. We do that by studying his word. We do that by looking for his coming, by witnessing to those who need to hear the gospel. That's how we're ready. So church, are you ready? Have you seen and savored the glory of the groom? Do you see what the signs in this text are pointing to? The sign in this text is pointing to? Friends, Jesus wants you, like his disciples, to see this, his first sign. And in doing so, witness his glory and put your faith in him. Witness his glory and put your faith in him. So as we get ready to respond in song here in just a minute. I like to call this time, you know, a lot of churches will call this the invitation time or altar call I simply call it the response time because I sincerely believe when the word of God goes out, it does not return void. And every single person that hears it is responsible to respond to it, whether you're a believer or not. The invitation time isn't just a time for unbelievers to come forward and for the rest of us to pack up our purses and figure out what we're going to do for supper. The invitation time, the response time is for you and me both, all of us in here, to respond to whatever it is God has shown us in his word. And friends, here's what I want believers, how I want believers to respond. I want you to see and savor the glory of the Son even more today than you saw it before. And I want you to worship him. I want you to give him glory. I want you to anticipate that marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want you to ask him if you're ready. Jesus, show me, am I ready? Am I ready for the wedding feast? And if you're an unbeliever here, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to see the sign. I want you to see who it's pointing to. And I want you for the very first time to taste and see 
how good Jesus is and put all of your hope, all of your faith in him alone to save you. He shed his blood for your sins. He died in your place. He lived the perfect life. He was the perfect obedient son that none of us could be. And then he shed his blood to take the wrath that every single one of us deserved. So I encourage you, I beg you, put your faith in Jesus this evening. So let me close this in prayer, and we'll let the worship team come up and lead us in a time of responding. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for living hope. I thank you for the name of this church, that it points not to a spot on a map, but it points to the only way that people can be made right with you. It's through the living hope of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this church would proclaim Jesus, the living hope, to this community. I pray, Lord, that the people of this community, especially as, as this church gets close to building a, a new building there on Beeson Street, that, that the, it would become a, a shining light in this community so that just like this sign, it points to the glory of Christ. Not to the glory of the people in this room. None of us, which, none of us in here deserve glory of any sort. But I pray that this church would be a shining light in this community so people see who Jesus is and put their faith in him. So Father, I pray that you would work in this church in a new and fresh way during this season of change and transition. And Lord, if there be anyone in here who has never put their hope and faith in you, then Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in their heart right now. And that for the very first time, their eyes would see and their ears would hear. And that you would bring them forward for their mouth to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray all this in his name. Amen.